Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, Kate McDade on going from performance on the basketball court and football pitch to performance nutritionist. We meet three women involved in cancer research from the laboratory to the clinical trial. Who are the people at the forefront of the advances? And Niall Breslin on his epic physical challenge to raise money to bring mental health programmes to our schools. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I'm good. I've been good this week, easing into the slower pace a little more and just accepting that I can only do what I can do. I don't think I can run the world and be present when my kids are off school. So I just leaned in a bit to mom mode this week and soaked it up a little. I feel that I'm at the stage of parenting where... I'm through that initial hurdle of babies and very small children and I feel like time is slipping through my fingers like sand. So I am just trying to make the most of it. And my sister also arrived from America with her three kids. She is still in those young kids and baby trenches, but it was so lovely to have them all in our house. Is there anything like the joy of a baby? And having a sibling who lives in another country, it does mean that when you do see them, it's concentrated quality time. You replace what might be popping in and out over a year into a week or two of 24-7 and I am just lapping it up. It's really bad. I was getting the house ready for her and I forgot what devil's work that travel cot is. But anyway, I'm getting it all organised and she hadn't even landed in Ireland and I was already dreading her going home. But look, such is life. And speaking of life, so many of you messaged me about Venetia Quick, who was on the show a couple of weeks back, talking about how running became her solace after the sudden death of her husband, Martin. She spoke so honestly and beautifully and so many of you commented on how the last thing she said to him was about the dishwasher and how it really is the simple things in life which are the most important. I also got a huge number of messages about the mindset coach, Maria McCarthy. It struck a chord with many of you. She was suggesting that we should try sit for 15 minutes with nothing at all to do, no phone, no book, no nothing and just see how it feels. So I'll have to see if I can fit in trying that one myself. If you do try, you can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, Kate McDade has a degree in food science and a master's in human nutrition. She knows all about peak performance, having played basketball at national level and football for Dublin. She worked with the Dublin Ladies GAA team, among others, at her nutrition consultancy business, NutriKate. But Kate is passionate about high performance for everyone and believes that correct nutrition practices should be easy, attainable and evidence-based. She joins me on the line now. Kate, you're very welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Claire. Delighted to be here. So when did your interest in nutrition begin? Probably, you know, in secondary school, I was playing a load of basketball, trying to make a Dublin team, an Irish team. And I suppose we got access to a nutritionist here and there. So I knew if I got a handle on things there, that it might give me that extra couple of percent to get where I wanted to get to from a basketball standpoint. And then in fourth year, I had um, the privilege of shadowing a nutritionist and she brought me along with her in, I suppose, the space of uh, the corporate line of things where she was talking about nutrition, how it can help your health, 
your performance, but to a whole demographic that I probably wasn't thinking about prior. Um, and that just completely captivated me. So from that point, really, between sport and that experience that I had in transition year, I knew what I wanted to do. And then it was a case of getting myself to that point. But at that time, you were kind of torn between two lovers as such with the nutrition and the basketball. One had to give. Tell us a little bit about you in basketball. Yeah, so, I mean, I was first introduced to in uh, secondary school, as I mentioned, that was like the thing in, um, at the secondary school that I went to. And very quickly, it, you know, took over my life. Um, you know, you're training every day, sometimes multiple times per day. Um, and, you know, I was very fortunate to, to make an Irish team and continue to progress then, you know, through college, playing um, Super League. Um, I moved over to do my Masters in the UK, so I got to play uh, over there too as well and then came back and played a number of years um, at Super League and National League level before actually moving to football <laughs> um, and doing that for a number of years. So, uh, yeah, I suppose nutrition supported me throughout that um, and really obviously bringing in responsibilities of life and work um, and everything that needs to be juggled there you know if I wasn't supporting myself from a dietary standpoint you know just from personal experience alone I, I know I wouldn't have been able to maybe sustain all that I was doing and was continuing trying to do. So when did you decide that sport at that sort of level wasn't going to continue? Well, it's taken me longer than it should have, Claire, to be totally honest, because I only just retired and hung up my, my boots. So as I said, I um, went from playing basketball to dipping my toe into football because I was, you know, working with the Dublin ladies, as you mentioned. I got to see all the big days, you know, help the girls prepare for Croke Park, the All-Ireland Finals, be in the dressing room and, like, feed off that buzz, essentially. And as a competitive person, you know, I wanted in. <laughs> so I started playing football and, you know, started playing senior level. And then last year, you know, got the opportunity to play for Dublin um, and progressed to, to midfield and, you know, won a Leinster medal. Um, but, yeah, last year was really now, you know, I was playing at an elite level. I was trying to run a business, you know, that was, five years old, um, a lot of pressure, a lot of responsibility, both from, well, really up to myself, you know, and my expectations and, um, you know, where I wanted to get to. And actually, despite, you know, maybe looking like, uh, you know, I was excelling from an outsider perspective, that was really an eye-opener for me in terms of the pressure I was under. And actually how unhappy I was as an individual. And, um, you know, on paper, things were great. I was achieving the goals I set out from a sporting standpoint. Business was going well, but I was miserable <laughs> underneath it all. So that was a massive eye-opener last year. I was completely burnt out, absolutely exhausted. And I was like, Kate, what are you doing? Like, you know, you're not, you're not enjoying really anything that you know you love. So... You know, did a little bit of thinking, reflecting, and and also I'm also at a point in my life now where my priorities are changing. You know, I want to drive forward with my career and really get that to where I want to be, and you know, progress personally. Um, you know, uh, 
looking as a female who wants to have a family and so on. So, yeah, it was a a difficult decision because you're leaving something that you love and that's been such a part of you and your identity, but also a very easy one when you kind of assess, you know, your happiness and what actually is filling that cup or what's, you know, draining us. Yeah, and we don't really talk about burnout enough and how it actually feels because as you said on paper everything was flying like you're playing mm-hmm. sport at top level you're winning medals and games and you're you're joining in on that buzz that you had experienced from the sidelines you're you're in it and your business is thriving but if you're not replenishing what you are taking away you can't actually enjoy that properly exactly and like i mean i suppose sometimes we can lose sight of the big picture and you know a huge part of my happiness is influenced by you know the people in my life people who I wasn't getting to spend time with because I was in the business or I was on the pitch Um, and that was taking its toll particularly when you've done it for such a number of years you know you're missing out on big days and that are important to the people that you care about the most and so that was kind of taking its toll. And when we look at health, you know, and the big picture of it, you know, it encompasses so many elements. And if we're pulling too much um, in one direction, you know, something is, is going to be falling short. So, um, you know, and that's something that I try and bring into my practice. It's, you know, sometimes we think we need one thing, but when we take the bigger picture into account, you know, we find ourselves maybe in a different position. Yeah, and leaning into joy and, and what was going to make you happy. So tell us a bit about your business then, Nutricate. Yeah, so um, my team and I work within sports. So from, you know, working with intercounty teams. So I am um, a performance nutritionist with Kildare senior footballers and, and hurlers. And um, we work with scholarship athletes at various universities We've got a clinic where we work with individuals on a one-to-one basis. So that's, you know, athletes that might want help with their performance or people who want to maybe improve their health and their performance on a day-to-day basis, lose weight, increase muscle mass, whatever it might be. Um, And then we also deliver corporate uh, workshops and seminars, food demonstrations, cook-alongs. So it's a a mixed bag um, and it certainly keeps me on and the guys on our toes, but you're, you know, I absolutely love it to say the least. So I'm happy. <laughs> and what do you hear from clients time and time again? Like you mentioned there that sometimes somebody will come to you and they'll think they want one thing. But when you take a proper holistic look at their lives and, and, and where they're at, they end up needing something completely different. Can you elaborate on that? Well, I think because you know, nutrition, health, fitness, there's a lot of information out there, uh, you know, with all the access that we have, whether it's, you know, social media um, or Google or whatever it might be. And there's a lot of information thrown about, you know, some of which absolutely holds weight, other not so much. So there can be a lot of confusion, even our understanding of, you know, what health, fitness, what, you know, feeling good actually encompasses. Um, so when you kind of listen to someone where they're at, what what they want to achieve, why they want to get there, 
And I suppose, you know, how that falls in line with their lifestyle and, you know, their their values, essentially, we can start to pick apart actually, you know, what direction they, they're really actually looking to get to um, and what success is actually going to materialise them. But that's, you know, getting a good understanding for where they're at and, you know, what the lifestyle looks like. Have they tried something from a dietary standpoint before? You know, what was good about that? What didn't work about that? Um, and, and finding a, a happy medium, I guess, where, you know, goals can be achieved, but life doesn't need to be put on hold. Um, you know, that we don't lose sight of the bigger picture. Um, and I think very often, sometimes when people think of nutrition or working with a nutritionist or a dietitian, that maybe joy needs to go. It's strict, it's rigid. Um, but actually, we're working towards something that's sustainable, that gives you the tools so that you can be flexible, so that, you know, irrespective of what's going to get thrown your way, because life, as we all know, throws multiple hurdles, and um, a lot of which we can never envisage. So, you know, if something kind of turns itself out, you know, you've got the tools to to work and um, and still work in the, in the direction that you want uh, to. So how do you balance it all? I mean, I know you've spoken about taking a really long, hard look at your life and how you were living it and that you've made changes there. Um, but your life is still busy with the business. How do you continue to prioritise your health and your nutrition? How did you not say, well, that's grand. I'm not playing you know, basketball or football anymore. I can just relax on the rules a little bit. Yeah, well, to be honest, it was like really figuring out, you know, what adds value to my day, what helps me, you know, channel stress, what allows the flexibility that I want so that I can see those people in my life that I care about, that I can spend time with my dog, go for nice walks, stay active, but also get work done, be productive and you know, be there in the best version possible for my clients, for my business. Uh, so it was an element of paring it back and actually going, I don't need to have a half an hour morning routine, lighting a candle, as we might be led to believe, you know, on maybe online or whatever it might be. Um, but, you know, getting out um, a couple of times throughout the day to, for a bit of fresh air, um, you know, making sure that I make plans with a friend over the course of the week and I'm finding a form of exercise that still challenges me um, but fits into my schedule. So, you know, makes me accountable so that it gets done and in turn I feel better for it, but not in the way that, you know, um, it's stressing me out or adding more strain to the week. So it was really just about you know, trying things out and seeing what is working here and what's not and and what falls in line with the goals I want at this point in time. Yeah, and I mean, I use the word rules, but it sounds like there aren't any. It just becomes a sort of a a way of life. And if people are listening um, and they're overwhelmed about nutrition, um, what should be the first step? Where do you suggest people start? Like, we really really underestimate the power in the basics the fundamentals and when it, what I mean by that is you know making sure you're hydrated including some fruit and vegetables 
making a meal from scratch if you can, for example. So I would focus on, you know, what could I do a little bit better on? So, you know, I mentioned a number of things there. So if we're to take hydration, for example, if you're someone who's not really drinking too much water throughout the day, target that um, instead of maybe focusing on what do I need to get rid of, what shouldn't be here. Like focus on what we can add in that's going to add benefit, make us feel a little bit better. And in turn, that might, you know, be the springboard to maybe look at something else. Um, sleep is actually probably one to bear in mind there because it often gets the boot too. So, you know, what is missing? What could I add in here um, and maybe work on that trajectory? You don't need to do anything drastic. You know, you're going to be the success of what you do on a consistent basis. So make that next step as easy to attain as you can and also as easy to maintain too because you'll start to see the results over what you're doing over a consistent period of time, not what you do here or there every couple of weeks. And it's interesting with everything you said, even about your own personal life to your approach to work, it's come back to this kind of self-reflection. What's working? What isn't? What could be tweaked? What couldn't? You know, what changes need to come about? And that's a a huge, important part. Well, you have a great way about you. Um, You're going to come back on the show on a bit more of a regular basis and give us some tips and tricks and all sorts around the latest news in nutrition. Um, and I'm great, very grateful that you are because, as you say, everything you put out there is easy, attainable and evidence-based. People can find out more at Nutricate.com. Kate McDade, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Marianne. Alive and kicking on News Talk. Now, a documentary, Bishock Own Ailsha, which aired on TG Cahar and is still available on their player, explores the innovative breakthroughs in cancer research in Ireland. One in two people will receive a cancer diagnosis in their lifetime, but research is leading to greater survival rates. I'm joined on the line now by three women who feature in the documentary, Orla Dolan, CEO of Breakthrough Cancer Research, Anne-Marie O'Sullivan, who was diagnosed with cancer in 2020, and medical research researcher Dr. Trina Nikanila. Well, you're all very welcome, ladies. Thank you for having us. Orla, um, CEO of Breakthrough Cancer Research, I might start with you. How important is it that we begin to get these sort of stories out there and this positive information around the breakthroughs in cancer? I think it's incredibly important, as you said there at the beginning, you know, one in two of us will be diagnosed with cancer in our lifetime. And that word cancer used to strike fear and still does in many families. But what what this documentary was about um, was really showing how much progress we have made and how many people can now survive a cancer diagnosis. At the end of 2022, there was 209 thousand cancer survivors in the country. So because of research, we've made a huge amount of progress and therefore it's not the kind of bleak diagnosis it used to be because of all these new treatments coming through. And I suppose the other part of that story was that, you know, it depends on the cancer at times that somebody's diagnosed with. And while we've made massive progress in breast and, and prostate cancer, we haven't seen the same in some others. And that we can make that progress too. We just need to keep going with that research And I think the other thing that 
um, I hope comes across in, in the documentary is, you know, we should be incredibly proud of the research that's happening here on this island. There's exceptional researchers that who are doing research that, you know, really is making a difference on a global scale. And, um, and you know, the support of the public is, is a, in a large part why we can continue that work. And so overall, it's just a, a positive message that cancer is something, yes, that is is a terrible thing to happen to a family but it's something that most people can survive now and we hope which is part of our vision is that everybody will survive that diagnosis and we feel research is the way that's going to happen. And with this sort of research is there collaboration between scientists and clinicians across Ireland and also internationally? Are we all working together in this research? Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, if you're going to have patient and clinically linked research, you are going to find that you have clinicians who are working in the hospital, working with um, researchers who are kind of in host institutions, often the universities here in Ireland. And then they're also bringing in the lived experience of the person who's had cancer or a patient so that all of those come together to identify what are the most unmet needs? What are the challenges that we still need responses to? And then they will work together. But you will also have multiple universities working with each other, multiple researchers and working on things beyond. The other thing they'll all do too is share the results of their research because it's like bricks in a wall. Every single person is taking on small aspects of it and they piece all that information together to make the big strides. So it's really a global community. But as I said, you know, we have tremendous scientists here um, who are as good as anybody else in the world and they are certainly making a contribution and we're proud to be able to support them in that. And reading up about all of you ahead of this interview, I was reading about you, Orla, and you originally trained as a scientist and began working in business management over in America. And then you bring that scientific and business background to the charity work that you now do. And I I wanted to ask you about the idea of cancer research and recovery being a business, because that's something that's often put out there. And I, and I wondered if you could maybe bust through that myth a little bit, because I think it strikes fear in in people's hearts and this whole idea. And I always try and blast it here on the show about big, bad pharma. What's your experience of, of that and that myth out there that cancer research and cancer recovery uh, can be more focused on the bottom line than on the people and the patients? Um, yeah, I mean, look, we often get the, I suppose, the kind of misinformation and the conspiracy theories that like big pharma have a cure for cancer and they're hiding it, you know, which doesn't really even kind of stand up to logic because, you know, if they did and they brought it out, wouldn't everybody, wouldn't they do better because of it? There is no desire for people to be on long term you know, treatments. I mean, what we're what we're all looking for is things to be more precise and kinder and smarter. But there is no doubt that you need the pharmaceutical industry to bring things to market ultimately. And so research is like a pipeline. So people who are working in the labs in the kind of early discovery will translate that through to say, okay, look, it starts out in cells. Now we're going to take it into in vivo models. Now we have to move it into trials. When you start to get to the point of the trials, you know, a lot of management goes into that and the cost of that becomes prohibitive. You need kind of pharma to come in and take that over. So what you find out as they're taking things to market is that like R&D or research is really expensive. And some of these um, drugs, when they come out first, are tremendously expensive. But that changes over time. Um, as things accelerate and as things you know become more widely available, they, the cost of those things come down. I mean, it is a challenge for us all in treatment that some of the most innovative new treatments, the immunotherapies, 
you know, are in the costs of hundreds of thousands of millions. And that's a, an issue for like things like our health service. How do we afford to give people? But, you know, if you're all of those industries and all of those people are really focused on patients. And I think, you know, for us and the and the community of people like charities and patients, what we constantly want to be pointing out to them is, look, let's meet the unmet need. How do we respond? You know, these are the people in our own families. Nobody is sitting there trying to hold something back. We all have the same kind of goal in mind and we have different aspects to work on it, which is how do we get effective, kind and, you know, the least toxic treatment to everybody so that if you are diagnosed, you can come out the other side and just look at it in the rearview mirror. And I don't think anybody in any of those industries isn't really focused on that. I want to bring in Anne-Marie O'Sullivan because Anne-Marie, back in June 2020, when all of us were trying to get our heads around the pandemic and the lockdowns and the homeschooling, you were doing all that and alongside it, you were receiving a cancer diagnosis. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so you have the timing exactly right. It was 19th of June, actually, 2020, I was diagnosed. Um, And at the time, even, so I found a lump in my armpit, which was unusual, but I kind of, cancer didn't come to mind. I was 37. It was a sore lump in my armpit. I couldn't find anything in my breast. It didn't occur to me that it would be breast cancer. But I was still kind of concerned, but enough of it was niggling at me, I suppose, to do something about it. But the doctors were closed and even seeking, like calling the doctor felt a bit immoral, really, because I felt like, oh, God, there's a big pandemic on and I only have a small lump in my armpit. What am I doing? But there was something, I suppose, that wouldn't let it lie. Um, and when I got in touch, the, the doctor was like, well, just wait two weeks. Um, and come back to me and see, just stop poking it. It, it might, be, might be sore then if you just leave it alone. Um, and then in that time, it grew significantly. Um, and I also found a lump in my breast then. But everything, like despite the fact that it was COVID, everything still happened in quick succession. Like I went in on the 19th of June. I was starting chemo in July. Everything kind of moved a lot, regardless, I suppose, of the global pandemic that was happening at the same time they were still prioritising everything and I was getting the scans as quickly as they could and you know everything kept moving which was so reassuring because I suppose outside of the system it felt like the hospitals were in a ray or, or in a mess and nothing was happening and you'd be left kind of unseen but when once they had we had the diagnosis it was kind of all systems go and I felt I just had to keep up you know everything kept moving very quickly. Wow. I mean, it must have been so much to take on. You underwent chemotherapy in July. You had an operation then in December and radiotherapy in February. And your doctor then offered you a new drug. Tell us a little bit about that, because I always think somebody with a a diagnosis of, of any kind you 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 move into a world that you know nothing of until you're you're in this crisis and you've to start to become um not only are you putting your 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 trust in the amazing people you meet along the way but you're having to take in so much different information tell us a little bit about being told about this drug yeah so before chemotherapy started um i was brought in and i was told it was kind of an inf- chemo information session and i was told that i'd be on three drugs the initials of which were tch And there was, I mean, the list of side effects was phenomenal. As you say, it was really hard to kind of get my head around it all. But before the the day before, I suppose I couldn't kind of sleep worrying what was ahead. And you have so many kind of ideas of what chemotherapy is from the television and all of that kind of thing that I suppose it, it came with its own history before I even started, you know, my idea of it all. So I was pretty terrified by the time I actually got in to sit on the chair and 
just then, I suppose, I was kind of just waiting, preparing myself and the pharmacist came out and knelt down beside me and she was like, we have some really good news. Um, there's a drug that we know, which is pertuzumab. We know that this is really, really effective when used alongside Herceptin, which I already knew that I was getting. And we haven't told you about it because we weren't in a position to give it. You were, you will be the first person with stage three cancer in Ireland to get this drug. And then she looked at her watch and she went, oh, well, it's 11 o'clock. We don't know what they're doing in Dublin, but you're definitely the first person in Munster to get this drug. And the results are fantastic. We know that it is from all the trials and the research, we know that it is really effective in targeting the cancer when used alongside her septum. But it also significantly reduces the risk of the cancer coming back again within the next five years. So this felt like through all of the fear and the anxiety and the worry, this was like a lifeline had just been thrown. And I remember crying in the seat going, I'm feeling really happy. (laughs) Like I wasn't expecting happiness of like, I felt so privileged. And I didn't at that time think of all the people who would put themselves forward for trials, who might have been given placebos or the hours or years of people in labs doing research. I was only grateful for myself that I had something to cling on to and some good news to give my family as well. It was such a, I suppose, through all of chemotherapy then when I, when I, I was really knocked by it, I found the experience really hard. Um, but in that, it was the consolation of going, I'm getting the best possible thing available. And if I had started a month beforehand, I wouldn't have been able to get it. And actually just recently I was talking to my oncologist and he said before I got it, through the public system, people were fundraising um, with crowdfunding to get Pertuzumab because they knew from the trials how effective it was, but the government funding hadn't been given yet. So it was a huge thing. The timing wise just felt really elating. <laughs> you know, I, feel, I felt really positive. So I want to bring in Dr. Trina Nikanila. Um, Trina, you're a medical researcher. So can you let us know a little bit, let us in behind the curtain as such as, as to how part of the process works. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. Um, so I work in the Royal College of Surgeons and I work very closely with clinicians at Beaumont Hospital who are part of the Beaumont or CSI Cancer Centre. And so the idea behind our work is that we're sort of um, trying to go from the lab to potentially eventually the, the bed. Um, and so to try and translate the research we find in the lab and move that eventually um, to the clinic where it may be of benefit to patients. And so in order to do that, we have to work really closely um, with the doctors in the hospital. And I work very closely with Professor Siobhan Glavy, who's a hematologist. So she mainly focuses on blood cancers. And that's the area then that my research uh, is interested in. And you received a multiple myeloma research fellowship. So tell us a little bit about that and some of the tools you've developed for personalised medicine. Yeah, so um, our goal is that we try and personalise the treatment better to the patient and so that we don't just use these very um, aggressive treatments that we could try and tailor them a little bit so that the side effects that a patient experiences would be less. And that's the goal of our research. And to aid um, that research, I previously received a multiple myeloma fellowship um, from the States. I also received funding from the Leukemia Research Foundation from the States. And obviously a PhD student in my lab, Lindsay Flanagan, she received a fellowship from Breakthrough Cancer Research to enable us to do this work. And without that funding, really, this work would not be possible. So our goal is try to um, 
ensure that we have treatments that that are just a bit gentler for the patient. Um, and that's that's our area of research. And that's so incredible to hear. And it really comes through in the documentary as well that, I mean, look, you have a PhD in, in biochemistry. Of course, a lot of it is based in science as much as we would want research to be, but that there's real heart in what you're doing that, as you say yourself, you're thinking belong beyond the lab to the bed and to the patients and to their experience through cancer. Absolutely. And that I think um, having patients involved in our research and discussing our research with patients is so important so we can hear about their lived experience with their treatment and so that we can try and tailor our research to improve their lived experience with cancer. And so that, that's a goal within our lab is try and meet the patients and, and to try and understand, you know, their main focus. Uh, and, and that is a big part of our research Um I'm working again with Professor Siobhan Glavi provides, she's working every day with patients, so we get feedback from her as well. And so really collaborative work uh, as a team, I think, can help really advance, hopefully, our, our treatments in this area. Anne-Marie, how did you feel about sharing your story on TG Cahar? Because this was obviously a very personal journey for you. So to be talking about it on camera, how, how did you navigate that? Yeah, well, in the car on the way there, you know, they were saying, so how are you doing? I'm regretting all my life decisions right now. <laughs> uh, this feels like an awful decision to make. Um, yeah, I was very, I was very anxious, I suppose. Um, they were, the filming process was really fantastic and felt really supportive. Um, and it, Evelyn was just amazing. She's a masterclass and, you know, in just the whole process, she's just a fantastic person from start to finish. It was really an honour to be around her. And then, in all the breaks and everything, we got talking to the researchers and I suppose I started to see an insight into their world and it made me feel really privileged that I got a, a part of this. Um, so all the kind of fear and worry that I had again was kind of all about myself and in my head. And then once I was there, I was like, this is actually really cool. <laughs> this is this is a great opportunity to be part of this um, and to see the work that they're doing. Like. I still kind of struggle to get my head around the complexity of the work that they're doing, but also things like the fact that they make cancer. I mean, I find this just the most alarming bit of news to be <laughs> dropped in. Um, but I mean, it makes sense that, you know, you have to make what you're combating. Um, but yeah, I just I found it a real privilege to be in it. And I'm so glad that I've done it. Um, and particularly now that it's released and it's out and I'm getting feedback. And I was just saying to Orla earlier, somebody was sending it on to somebody who was starting chemotherapy as a story of hope. And that felt like a really privileged position to be in that we, we, we made something that might help people or they might look at it and be offered a trial and go, do you know what? Trials are absolutely worthwhile. And the benefit for those that come after is really it's, it is worth the effort, I think, and the, the time that it takes. But I understand that it is a big decision to make a trial and I certainly wouldn't judge anybody for saying no to it. I just think that having been at the receiving end, I'm eternally grateful for the people who put themselves forward. And I don't even know how many we're talking. I don't know if it's hundreds or thousands, but, you know, people who were as scared as I was still decided that they were going to take the trial and in the hope that the people who came after them would have a better outcome. And I think that's amazing. Yeah, and I love that. I mean, it's lessons for life, isn't it really, Anne-Marie? Sometimes the things we think we can't do, we actually can and we end up really enjoying the experience along the way. But I completely understand why you would have been driving there with trepidation. But what an incredible thing your story has done. And 
she's right, really, isn't she, to bring you back in, Orla Donlan, CEO of, of Breakthrough Cancer Research. These types of documentaries and starting these conversations, this will have a knock-on effect, not only for potential patients down, down the line and their decisions, but will it help to push for continuing research into poor prognosis cancers? Yeah, that's our hope. I mean, I think the very good stories of Anne-Marie and Katrina are kind of um, examples of how, you know, novel treatments that are coming through or new treatment protocols in the case of Katrina, you know, that has borne on the back of, of research. And then you're meeting two vibrant women who are positively telling you that, you know, they've come out the other side and of what was a tough chapter, but they're they're out the other side and and they're able to kind of look back, as did Evelyn talk about that too. Like the challenge that we have is that while like breast cancer survival rates are nearly 90% now after five years and and prostate is well over 95, you know, pancreatic is only 10% survival. So I suppose what we're trying to show in this is like, look how much progress we've made. It is tremendous. And um, and we, we won't give up on those cancers too because we want to get them more personalised and, you know, even better treatments for those. But can we spend um, more research investment in those cancers that, that really have less than 25% or less than 30% survival, which have to be, you know, devastating to get as a diagnosis, to be told that there really isn't a lot to offer you. And we know that research is the answer to that too. So so we just need to put more investment in those cancers because we are absolutely convinced we can solve them too, just with more funding and more ideas, you know. And I think it's worth pointing out, you've both mentioned Evelyn, that Evelyn O'Rourke, the accomplished and, and very warm and, and lovely uh, journalist and presenter, is the presenter of this documentary. She speaks of her own cancer journey and brings the cancer survivors face to face with the cancer research here in Ireland. And can I ask Anne-Marie, how are you now? Um, Orla's right, you sound very vibrant. Um, is your cancer journey in the rearview mirror for you? It is, yeah. Um, I've just recently, so my radiotherapy was actually in 2021. Um, and so I kind of finished the main bulk of my treatment in July 2021. Um, so it was kind of a year from start to finish. And since then, I've noticed I'm getting stronger and stronger. And it's not, I think I expected a lot from myself. You know, by August 2021, I was like, right, we're back to normal life now. Off I go. Um, it's been slower road than that. Um, and I think a lot as well is kind of the processing, what happened and all of that side of things as well takes a bit of time. Yeah. But absolutely, I'm flying it now. I really, there's not a question, I'm absolutely flying it. I feel really, really well. Um, and I've just had another clear mammogram there um, recently. And yeah, it's it feels like I even didn't ring up to check immediately about the results of my mammogram because I was feeling confident and well in myself. And I was like, I've got this. I've, I'm, go- I'm going to my checkups. I'm checking myself. Everything is in hand. I'm getting a bit of faith in my health again, which I think is kind of the longest bit of recovery is kind of, you know, to trust that everything could be well. You know, it could just be a cold. It might not be cancer of the throat. You know, I think that kind of that psychological bit of it is is a longer road. But absolutely, I'm getting there and I feel really well, really well. Well, look, it is fantastic to hear and I so appreciate all of you joining me on the call today, Orla Dolan, CEO of Breakthrough Cancer Research, Anne-Marie O'Sullivan, continued health success to you and medical researcher Dr. Trina Nikanila. The documentary is called Bishok Own Ailsha and you can catch it now on the TG Cahar player. Thank you so much again, ladies. Alive and kicking. 
on News Talk. Now, on June 30th, Brezzy and some friends embarked on an epic kayak journey the length of the River Shannon, over 300 kilometres. He arrived into Limerick City days later, battered and bruised, but he had completed what was dubbed the Rising, raising just over €98,000, and he joins me on the line now. Well, congratulations to you. Thank you very much. What has the recovery been like? Well, you know what, it actually... It only it only hit me about three or four days after, which was strange. And it was like, it wasn't even physical. It was just mental exhaustion. Cause I've done endurance stuff before, but not over like six or seven days. So it's an entirely different mindset. But um, yeah, there was the kind of natural come down that you get after it, that you have to be quite aware of and self-aware of it and realize it's not anything other than just a bit of a come down. And, but now I'm feeling relatively human again. And and proud, I'm sure, that you were able to complete what you set out to do. Yeah, I mean, I think the best part of that challenge was not knowing what that challenge was, was the naivety of it. We hadn't a clue what we were letting ourselves in for. And I think it's a real lesson. Sometimes I think you can over-know things, and they can be real handbrakes. They can really fear, you know, paralyze you with fear. If I knew what the Shannon was, I would never have done it. And that's the truth, because the weather was barbaric and um, the lakes were not particularly safe if I'm being honest we, we had a support boat with us but the RNLI were on speed dial there because Loch Derg is an enormous enormous lake it, you know you can't see the side when you're in the middle of it it's that big it's 44 kilometers long so yeah there was real challenges physical challenges in us, but I think ultimately it was a mental a mental challenge and when did the idea for this kayak rising come about my mate Ray, uh, I went to school with Ray, and Ray, I played football with Ray, and Ray was, like me in school, we were we were slightly lost souls, but we were quite close, and he owns a kayak shop in Mullingar called Lakeland Kayaks, and he's been following us for life's work for a while, and he's very he's very passionate about the work that, that we do. So he kind of rang me and said, listen, you want to kayak to Shannon? I was like, which part? He was like, the whole thing. I was like, nope. I definitely don't. And then I signed up for it literally a day later. And I did see on social media recently enough, you looked into your fitness levels with biometric tests. So how fit did you need to be for this? And and, and where were you at with all that? You see, I think in my own head, I felt responsible for the other guys as well. So I felt that I needed to be in a position that if they got stuck in the middle of the lake or they hit a wall or, or, or... the weather turned and we weren't able to get to shore, that I was physically in a position to be able to support them. So I had a kind of heavy sense of responsibility, and I think Ray had that as well. But the fitness, it, 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 the kayaking is, you don't need huge fitness as such. You just need to be quite mobile and strong because you're sitting in a 90-degree angle for 8 to 10 hours a day. And, you know, it's really hard, the hips and the lower back, and your kind of shoulders and your hands. So you have to actually do a lot of conditioning and strength work. But I I ended up fitter, leaner and stronger than I was with a professional rugby player by the training that we were doing. And, and my my metrics that I was measuring were far lower in, in a positive way than they were when I played rugby. So there's a huge positive physical fitness element to it as well. Wow. Now you mentioned the conditions. You had like a GoPro on your helmet and I've seen some of the footage 
it's way more choppy than I would ever have thought. If people are thinking of the nice mosey down the Shannon on a boat pulling in, you know, to bars and restaurants along the way, that was not the reality. So you must have been pretty shocked. The Shannon, and this is a ridiculous thing to say, but I'm kind of stating the obvious, is enormous. Like, I don't think people realise how truly wide and big it is. Even the river feels like a lake. But the weather was horrific. I had Carla Weather, Alan and Carla Weather was giving me updates every two hours. Like, you can't go, you know, you've got to get out at five in the morning to beat the wind. And, but I think in Lockree, we had a very scary moment. Uh, Joe, one of our guys, went into the water and in a storm, the water turned and he capsized. And we had safety training done. But it's an entirely different thing when you're in the middle of, you know, three meter waves. And that's what they were. Uh, but our training was done and we, we, we got him out of the water and we did what we had to do and got him to the shore. So I was very proud, m- more proud than I've ever been of anybody in my life and any kind of endurance type of thing than I was with the team in that moment. But I think kayaking the Shannon is hard, but kayaking the Shannon with the weather that we were given Every single day, it was raining. Every day, it was windy. And ultimately, when I look back on it, we probably shouldn't went out in Knockery and Knockdurg. It wasn't particularly safe. But as I said, we had a support boat in case things went wrong. And you had a childhood fear of getting trapped underneath a kayak. Was it something that happened to you at summer camp? How hard was it for you to brush that aside and take this on? Well, like, it's hard to describe the fear I had of that. I, I was trapped under a kayak and the canal in Mullingar years ago. I was haunted by that. And these are sit-in kayaks. So you're sitting into it and there's like a, there's a procedure to get out of it when you, when you capsize. You, you go underwater. You, your head goes underwater. Then you, have, you then have to remove the spray deck that you have. You have to pull that and then you have to tap the top of the kayak three times with your hands to calm yourself down so you don't panic, which is ridiculous. And then then you just calmly let yourself out of the water. So... I had a fear of that, and we had to do that in training, and we had an amazing coach, David Horkin, and I just faced it. So I did it a few times, and then I did it a few times, you know, on my own. I capsized myself, and I got comfortable with it. But the other thing is I don't really fit in the kayak. I'm, <laughs> I've got a big arse. I have big hips. I'm six foot six, so I don't just slide out of the kayak. So that was all that kind of stuff I was living with in my head. But I wanted to ask you, like, how do we know when to push through our fears and just do it anyway? And how do we know when to listen to our gut and say, that's not for me? There is a very fine line between bravery and stupidity. We kept saying that. We had done the training. We had focused. We had prepared beyond prepared for that. So these fears that I had were were slightly irrational because of an early trauma that I experienced. And when you're doing it the right way with the right people, that's the best way to face that fear. So there were certain elements of the, the challenge that I think when I look back on them, they were stupid. Uh, if I'm being honest, I think Lockdown was stupid. I think it was a, a dangerous position we ended up in. Uh, we were in the middle and the, the, the weather turned and we were so far from the shore that it wouldn't have made sense to try to get to it. So when I look at that, that was stupidity and I'm glad we got through it, but I certainly wouldn't put people in that position again. 
Well, look, as I said, you were doing it for a very good reason to raise money. You had a target of 100k for a lust for life. And where will the money go? Yeah, well, we've now gone over the 100k. Thank God we're we're at 120, 130k now, which is incredible because my I've talked to you about this before. I believe at every cell in my body that the best way to best support young people in terms of changing uh, the mental health system is early prevention. I think we have to look at it in a very real way and Lust for Life have done that. We're now in over 1,000 primary schools. We are well on our way to being in every primary school within the 2024. We are now focusing on secondary school, post-primary. Our aim is to be a complete education, early prevention tool from baby infants all the way up to leaving cert and have a kind of consistent program that has has a thread through it. So this takes a lot of work. These programs are free for schools. We do a lot of research. We research at UCD and DCU. I'm doing my PhD in it. So it takes a lot of money to do this. And that's why we have to fundraise. And that's why we did it. And as I said to you before about, you know, the CAMS reports and, and where we're at with mental health, I said this when I got into Killaloo at an event. I said, you think what we're doing is hard? You should try and get help for your child when they have mental health distress in this country. That's truly difficult to be a parent or a guardian in that position in this country or being told they have to wait two years for an assessment or two years to actually get support. And it's just not something we should tolerate. You know, and I think that's ultimately what a Lust for Life is trying to bring some form of solution to is is early prevention. And that's why we did it. Yeah. And it's such a good analogy of you like battling against the elements. And that's what lots of people are going through, the parents and guardians and the people themselves. And you're right, we need to do better. You are still taking donations. And if people want to donate, they can go to alustforlife.com or you'll find a link on Brezzy's Instagram page. He is, of course, at Brezzy. So are your mom and your girlfriend okay after watching you go through all of that? No, (laughs) no. And I will never put them through it again uh, until next year. But I, I think actually something else you said there that I think is important, like one of the real lessons we try to teach young people in our programs is that life isn't a straight line, that sometimes in life you will be uncomfortable. Sometimes in life you will struggle and you will suffer. That is part of the human condition. Like the river, some beautiful parts, some really horrible parts, some stunning parts and some scary parts. It's just literally like life. And I think these are messages that young people need to hear. I think sometimes in the wellness industry, we airbrush out the reality of this stuff and it's not good. And I think, you know, these these are important kind of metaphors that we did use for the Shannon. But in terms of my mum and my partner, I, you know, they they were put through a lot there. And Joe, one of the guys doing it, I didn't know he was doing an Instagram live in the middle of Loch Derg. And when we got off Loch Derg, I just had these tears and... <laughs> all sorts of going, what are you doing? Um, So I kind of gave Joe a bit of a, don't be putting that stuff up online because you're scaring the crap out of her family. Well, look, I'm just glad everyone made it safe to shore. You have raised an incredible amount of money that will make a huge difference. And, you know, you often talk about being a boy in a classroom where there was no language around mental health and you're really going a huge way 
to make a change there. There is that language in classrooms up and down the country. So thank you for that. We let you go back to your couch. It's well deserved. Try not to sit in a 90 degree angle. Just slouch and relax. And again, people can find out more at lustforlife.com. Brezzy, thanks as always. Thanks a million, guys. Cheers for your support. And I did mention that Kate McDade is going to come back and do some features for us around nutrition. So if you have any nutrition-based questions, anything about supposed healthy eating or good food, bad food, even though I don't agree with anything like that, I don't want anything to be off the table. You could email aliveandkicking at newstalk.com and we'll put them aside for the next time Kate comes on. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aoife Breen, to Hugo De Silva Scott who was on sound and thanks to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.